Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8. Sexual immorality defiles the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as of present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's pray together. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Amen. Ten times. Ten times. Ten times in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he says, Do you not know? Ten times. And it's a phrase intended to indict. Each time Paul says, do you not know, he's basically saying, you should know this. You should know this. You should know this. And the last time we heard it, the first time Paul used, do you not know, in 1 Corinthians, it sounded like this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The Corinthians should have known that they themselves were the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the very temple of God. They, they should have known this. But because they do not know this, Paul once more says this morning, do you not know? Again, this morning we'll see a principle that should have been self-evident to the Corinthians, a principle that should be self-evident to us, but oftentimes goes unpracticed. What is this principle? Paul writes this. Look, look at your Bibles with me. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is our main idea this morning. This is the big idea in our passage. It's this. Ready? Unrepentant sin in a community has disastrous effects way out of proportion to its size. I'll say it one more time, and we'll look at it again and again and again. Unrepentant sin in a community has disastrous effects way out of proportion to its size. And to see this principle in action, we're invited this morning to consider a real situation involving a man and his stepmother. A man and his stepmother. Three points to work through this morning. Ready? 
One, the sin. Two, the response. And three, the principle. So the sin, the response, and sort of this wider, a greater principle at play. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 5, let's read verses 1 to 2 once more. Let's look at the sin. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I know it looks like one sin in our text this morning, but actually we find two sins in the text, two acts of rebellion against God's created order. And the first sin is the obvious one. It is the sin of of sexual immorality. And before we go any further as to the details of this sexual immorality, we have to first clarify what this word means. See, the word that we translate sexual immorality is, in the Greek, a word that might sound very familiar to many of us. It's this word, porneia. Porneia. Porneia is the New Testament broad word that covers all sexual sin. This broad, all-encompassing word. So not only is incest, as described here, porneia, but sex outside of marriage, prostitution, same-sex relationships, adultery, are all porneia, all outside of God's design for sex. And I should say this just so it's really clear because we're going to go some places in 1 Corinthians that will make us feel very uncomfortable. So we need to know our bearings. I want to be very clear about this. God's design for sex is that it would be enjoyed and treasured and experienced in the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. From Genesis to Revelation, it is abundantly clear. The Bible is clear on this matter. Now, I don't need to tell you that what is porneia for the people of God is not always seen as such by the wider world, by the broader culture. And this was especially true in Corinth. Corinth was the the epicenter of sexual expression in a world obsessed with sex. So in an ancient world that loved sex, that talked about sex and and wrote about sex and was obsessed with, with sex, Corinth was the epicenter of that sexual world. In, in fact, the, the Greek playwright Aristophanes, he coined the term, and I'll butcher this, but that's okay, Corinthiazo. And this term Corinthiazo means to Corinthianize, and it's shorthand for fornication. That, that, that's who the Corinthians were a sex-obsessed people in a sex-obsessed world. But even, even sex-obsessed Corinth had its limits, its boundaries. And one of the boundaries that Corinth had drawn was incest. That was a boundary for them. Paul begins, it is actually, as if you can't believe it, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What is the sin? 
For a man has his father's wife. Paul's saying this. A man in the church is sleeping with his stepmom. Or it could be read like this. It's possibly even worse. A man in the church is sleeping with his mom. And it's porneia. It's sexual immorality. It is contrary to the vision of sexuality consistent through the Old and New Testament. It is contrary even to the pagans. It is contrary even to Roman law. And it's in the church, this holy dwelling place, God's people. This is no good. It's no good. But despite all of this, however, I would argue that no matter how disturbing this first sin is, and it is disturbing if we're honest, it makes us feel queasy and not right, it's the second sin, the other sin, that actually Paul is much more concerned about. What is that sin? What is the second sin? Look at verse 2 and the response of the Corinthian church to the first sin. Paul says this. What's your response, Corinth? And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See, the greater sin, the sin that makes a man sleeping with his stepmom look small in comparison is the sin of the church that refuses to weep over sin. It's the sin of the church that refuses to remove the man from amongst them. It's the sin of a church grown complacent, grown arrogant, grown proud, puffed up. See, scholars have tried to to understand what's going on here. Why is a Corinthian church proud? And a number of options have been suggested. Uh, The first is this. Maybe this man is a man of standing in the community. Remember those wealthy patrons? Everybody wanted to serve and, and find themselves under. Maybe he's a wealthy patron. And so maybe they're like, listen, this guy's got money and power. Let's just let him do his thing, right? Or maybe, as some have suggested, that the Corinthians have taken their freedom too far. Christ died for my sins. I can do whatever I want. Or maybe, just simply, it's the Corinthians being Corinthians. Just another example of the culture infecting the church and the church not being distinguishable from the wider world. Whatever the case, whatever the reason, the sin of another ought to make them weep. And instead, what does Paul say? They are proud. It sounds strange to us, doesn't it? This response of pride. It it sounds strange to us. We get ignoring sin. We get minimizing sin, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But but being proud of sin? Strange. Until it's not. See, this shouldn't sound strange to us. Let me bring this to our world today. How many, how many allegedly Christian congregations bearing the name of Christ choose to celebrate that which the Bible explicitly condemns? And when they do celebrate it, what is the posture? Is it not Pride. 
pride that through intellectual rigor and really understanding the text, they've arrived at this new, historically novel conclusion. Is it not pride? Pride that they, and and they alone, are brave enough to take a stand, to be, as they say, on the right side of history. Is it not pride? 1 Corinthians 5 has replayed over and over and over again in 10,000 places since the man was with his father's wife. And throughout the ages, the word of God has sounded the same refrain. The very thing which you boast about is the thing that ought to make you weep. The very thing that you're proud of is the thing that grieves the heart of God the most and the thing that ought to grieve you. But let's move closer to home. Let's make this uncomfortably personal. See, this evil response, arrogance instead of weeping, pride instead of mourning, this is not only a sin of liberal churches. I want to be very, very clear. And I'll make this clear by asking this one simple question. Christ City, when was the last time your sin caused you to weep? When was the last time my sin caused me to weep? When was the last time you truly grieved about the way that you spoke to your coworker? You mourned, truly mourned the way that you handled your child. You lamented, truly lamented, the foolish comment that seemed to spill so easily, so effortlessly from your mouth. The truth remains, any time our sin is met with this minimizing impulse, it's not that bad. They deserved it. At least it's 50-50. I'm sure Jesus forgives me. Anytime our sin is met with a minimizing impulse, it is pride, Paul says. Pride. It betrays this functional belief that my sin, my offense, for, for some reason, is not an offense against the Holy God, His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Church. And so the accusation stands this morning. Do you not know? Do you not know? Unrepentant sin in a community has disastrous effects way out of proportion to its size. Do you not know? Do you not know? So what do we do? What do we do? Look at verses 3 to 5. This is Paul's response. We've seen the sin. This is the response. Paul writes, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I want to now be very careful and very clear as to what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. What he is saying, what he's not saying. First thing is this. This morning, 
Paul is making a formal pronouncement. It's a formal pronouncement. Uh, this is the language. I, I don't know if you picked up on that. This is not the language of, of recommendation. It's not the language of, you know, professional suggestion or opinion. This is the language of formal pronouncement. It's the language of an apostle making an authoritative judgment concerning the sin of a man. It's the first thing. The path of repentance for this church is to now walk in obedience to do what Paul has already pronounced. That's the first thing. Second, Paul and his church, the church, are acting representatives of Christ. They gather, Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. They remove the man from the community with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is not a power play on Paul's part. He's not looking to consolidate authority. He doesn't just not like the guy. They are gathered and are pronouncing in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we should add, this is being done in accordance with Jesus' own teaching. Maybe you know this passage in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives instructions as to how we are to confront brothers and sisters who are caught in sin and what we're to do when that sin is unrepentant. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, well, you've gained a brother, and praise God. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, still tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an outsider, an outsider. So if we back up, if we take a deep breath, if we back up and remove ourselves from the extreme situation which Paul is, is living in and working with through the Corinthian church, and we consider Jesus' teaching, we're reminded that this thing called church discipline, which is this word that we're not quite fond of, this thing called church discipline is happening all the time. All the time. Let me give you some examples. Church discipline is happening when you tell your brother or sister in Christ how they've sinned against you, they repent, they say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And then you go to lunch. That's church discipline. It, it, it's happening when a group of men, they lovingly confront a brother on his, what he thought was secret porn addiction, and he repents, and they forgive him and welcome him, and they go to lunch. Church discipline is happening when you have that married couple over for dinner. You know that couple who makes cutting remarks about the other spouse behind their back? And you confront them on their words, and then you eat dinner. These are all instances of, of church discipline, of the church being the holy temple of God. And I give all these examples because especially today, especially in view of very public and well-known instances of church discipline gone wrong, we've become allergic to the word, yet we're doing it all the time. Let me just say this as an aside. Anecdotally, anecdotally, in my experience, 99% of the church discipline I have been involved in has resulted in the repentance and restoration of the brother or the sister. And yet, there are times, 
when Jesus says he or she refuses to listen. And in those instances, it is the duty of the elders on behalf of the entire church, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Which leads us to the third thing you need to hear me not saying and the thing you need to hear me very clearly saying. Paul is saying that the heart of church discipline, the aim of church discipline, the the goal of church discipline is restoration. Is restoration. Making whole that which has been broken. Making new that which has been tarnished. Yes, church discipline is to protect the broader church. I'm going to see this in a bit. But it's also very much for the well-being, for the salvation of the individual being disciplined. Well, how? We, we can think of church discipline being both active and passive. Church discipline is both active and, and, and passive. It's active in that the person is being removed from the community. They're not being asked. They're not being consulted. The, the person is not choosing this. The church is choosing this on their behalf. The church is actively guarding the reputation of Jesus. They are actively living into the previous principle that the church is God's holy temple. There's an active component to church discipline, but there's also a passive component. Look at this. It's passive in that the church is saying to the individual, go and live in the realm that you belong to. Go and live according to your desires. As two scholars put it, the offender is sent back to his domain. So passively, the church is saying, we've warned you individually, we've warned you as a group, we've warned you as a whole church, but you've not repented, and so we will not stop you from being who your behavior tells us you are. Someone who belongs to the realm of darkness. And if that sounds very harsh and hopeless and bleak, we need to be reminded now of the the other half of verse 5, right? See, in both the active and passive components of church discipline, the aim remains restoration. We do all this, Paul tells us, so that his spirit, the man's spirit, may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, here's the summary The man is given over to his sin with the hope that he will come to the end of himself. Like the prodigal son who came to his senses, that the man will realize the folly of his way and repent. See, every time someone is disciplined in the church community, removed from the community, it is a warning both to the person and the church. As one author writes, It stages a small play that pictures the great judgment to come. And thought of it this way, church discipline, according to Jesus and Paul and the Bible, it is more like a mother or a father who discipline their child, hoping they'll do what is good and right and true and beautiful in this world. And yet we have to acknowledge the ugly truth this morning, that for most of us, The examples that we're familiar with have nothing to do with good and loving parents, but with power-hungry leaders looking to consolidate power. 
And so does the abuse of authority justify the elimination of authority? I think the answer is no. And I want us to see three things of what this means for us today. Christ at East Vancouver, seeking to follow Jesus here and now in this place. The first thing I want, I want to apply to us is this. For the sake of one another and the purity of this church, we must become accustomed, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, to speaking the truth to one another in love. The author of Hebrews commands us, not suggests, not, not recommends, commands us to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We could say this, and this will sound harsh, but it's true. A community that does not speak gracious, corrective words to one another is a community that functionally hates each other. A church that does not speak corrective words to one another functionally hates one another, or at the very least is apathetic as to your eternal destination. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. Second thing is this. So we must say hard words to one another in love, graciously. Second thing is this. Church discipline is a very, very good reason for you to become a member at your local church. When you become a member of your local church, you are saying, I need others to help safeguard my spiritual well-being. You're saying, I can't see my blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. You're saying, I don't trust my ability to see my own sin. And by the way, every person here, including the elders, who are members, are all saying this. This is what we're all saying in becoming members. That I don't trust my own intuition, my own sight in seeing and correcting my own sins. I need shepherds. Our shepherds need shepherds. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus... If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to hold up the Bible as authoritative in your life, like, why not take the whole thing? Seriously, why not take the whole thing? Why not follow him in obedience with all your life? Why not welcome rebuke and correction from a loving brother or sister? Here's a resolution for 2022. Say this, in 2022, I'm not going to take a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of the church or a little bit of the Bible, commit to taking the whole thing, all of it. Picking and choosing what parts of the Bible work for you will never work out for you. Friends, get off the sidelines. Become a member. And if it's not here, then become a member somewhere else. Throw yourself into the life of the church and flourish. Last thing before we look at our last point. So speak hard words to one another in love. Become a member of the church. Last thing. This side of eternity, before Jesus returns, and he's coming back, church discipline will always be administered by sinners to sinners. By sinners to sinners. Let me speak just personally for a moment. While I'm not aware of an instance where the end result in church discipline wasn't the right call, I am very aware this morning, very aware 
of how I have failed in the details of church discipline. Moments when I was slower to bring a word of correction than I should have been. Instances when I presumed a motive to the sin that I shouldn't have presumed. Moments when I've spoken harshly or from a place of frustration or exhaustion. If perfection in church discipline is our aim, we should give up the cause. We we should stop. But if Jesus demanded perfection in his leaders, he wouldn't appointed people to lead his church. Christ City, unrepentant sin in a community has disastrous effects way out of proportion to its size. And I want to again ask us this morning, as we close, if we truly believe that. If we truly, truly believe that. See, Paul, in verse 6 to 8, he will zoom out for us now. It could have been really easy for Paul. He could have said, listen, in Leviticus 18, it says a man can't sleep with his mom. Case closed. But Paul roots and grounds his exhortation in a bigger, a broader, a wider gospel principle. Look at verse 6 to 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the understatement of the year, Paul begins, right? You're boasting, it's not, it's not good. It's, it's not good. It's not a positive thing. I hope you see that. Why is it not good? It's not good because the sin, you Corinthians, you've made peace with this sin, but like yeast, this sin will act as this unstoppable force in your community with effects way out of proportion to its size. And I wonder, again, if we get this, how many of us, you know, you go and you get your coffee, and, and as you're drinking your coffee this morning, how many of us w- would be okay with me saying, just so you know, there's just a tiny little itsy bitsy, you know, not really a big deal, little, little tiny bit of arsenic in your coffee this morning. Just a little bit of poison. And Jen's done that and she clearly hates you. <laughs> Who'd be okay with that? Just a little tiny bit of, of poison in your coffee this morning. Or maybe you're out at a restaurant and you go to take a bite of your sandwich, but before you do, well, hold on a second, you should know that in your sandwich is just a little bit, just a tiny bit of the chef's boogers. It's disgusting. Like, who among us would continue, oh, just a little bit of arsenic in my coffee? No problem. Just a little bit of snot in my sandwich? No problem. Oh, we, we dump the coffee. We, we, we'd bin the sandwich. What the coffee and the sandwich and the church are in need of is cleansing. And the good news this morning, Christ City, is that Christians have received this cleansing once and continually. Paul says Christians have received this cleansing once. The very first thing that happened at the very first Passover when Israel was in Egypt was the killing of an animal, the killing of a lamb. The lamb's blood spread on the doorposts of the house. 
And the Lord, seeing that blood, would pass over the Israelite homes. And he would not judge them or strike them, but the Egyptians, he would both judge and strike. For us, though many years removed from that first Passover, from Egypt, we nonetheless, Paul says, have our own Passover lamb. He writes, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is graphic language to combat the graphic language that's happening in the Corinthian church. Christ has been given his blood shed, his life sacrificed, that when we put our faith in him, we are no longer like the Israelites under the fear of death and judgment. We have been redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. All our porneia wiped clean, made new in Christ, all because of Jesus, our Passover lamb who's died for us. And so we sing awkward and strange things like cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Or there is a fountain filled with blood that comes from this Passover lamb. We have been cleansed once and for all in Christ. That is good news this morning, Christ City. I hope you see this. But that's not the only thing that happened at Passover. See, after the lamb was, was sacrificed, the people in the home would go around and they would sweep out from the home all the old leaven, all the old yeast, all the old yeast, right? Your, your precious, you know, hipster sourdough starter thrown away. All gone, all emptied from the house. And this was the sign, this symbol to signify, to underscore the radical new beginning that was happening at the Exodus. Old leaven gone, old yeast gone. It's a new beginning. It's a new life. You're now to live in that newness of life. Christians, you also have undergone an Exodus, a rescue, a freedom-inspiring event. Once imprisoned to the old leaven, the old domain, the old ways of death and destruction, you have been made new. As Paul says here, and bakers, you should love this, you've been made into a fresh batch of dough. You are now to grow up, not according to old ways, but according, Paul says, to the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Our cleansing has happened once, but our cleansing also happens continually. And the question is, why does it happen continually? Why do we keep on needing to experience the cleansing work of Christ, keep on having his work applied to us in our sin, in our day? Well, it's because of this. It's because we don't always act like the people we already are. My suspicion this morning is that none of us know who we truly are. None of us know who we truly are. None of us. Because if we knew who we truly were, if we truly knew, if, if we saw ourselves like, like Jesus saw us, we wouldn't want for anything knowing that we're already rich in Christ. We wouldn't seek to cover up our sin, knowing that we're children of the light. We wouldn't allow sin to fester quietly in our churches, knowing that we're the very temple of the living God. No, if we knew who we really were. Oh. See, here's the better resolution for 2022. 
let's resolve to live like the people Jesus says we already are. Paul says, and it's probably the most beautiful part of this passage, he says, look at verse, I think it's in verse 5. I could be wrong. No, verse 6. Paul says, you really are unleavened. It's as if he knows that the Corinthian church, experiencing all this brokenness, all this porneia, all this weirdness, would find it hard to believe that they really are the new creation people that, that God calls them to be. And so he says, you really are unleavened. You really are these people. And I have no doubt this morning that most of you don't believe that, that you are these people. But let, let me say, Christ City, you really are unleavened. Do you hear that? Do you feel dirty? We feel dirty. But Paul says in Jesus, you really are clean. And we feel ashamed. But Paul says in Jesus, actually, you've received honor. And we feel divided and torn and, and disappointed. But Paul says, actually, in Jesus, you're finally whole. Oh, if we would only see who we already are, Christ City. Only if what is true of us with Christ would become more of who we are now. What a phrase. You really are unleavened. Do you believe that this morning, Christ City? I'm praying, and Paul's praying, and Daniel's praying, and he's praying, and all your community group leaders are praying that we would be people who truly know, really know that we are unleavened. Everything this year depends on you and on me and on us believing God when he says who and what we actually are. I want you to insert your name in this moment. So Maisie and Capri and Ian and Hugo and Cody and Andrea you are new creations in Christ. That's what Jesus says about you. And that's not an airy-fairy, light theology. That's what the Bible says about you. You are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and his Spirit is continually sweeping out the old leaven that threatens to ferment our bread. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be the people you say we are. And so we open our hands to you now and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would come and help us to live as the people you've made us to be. And perhaps we've come this morning feeling dirty, feeling ashamed, feeling divided, Would that truth, which is so far away from us right now, the truth of our salvation, the truth of our cleansing, the, the, the truth of our sanctification, our being made holy, would that truth come off the shelf and be in our hearts, be a felt experience by your Holy Spirit? Oh, Lord, we ask that you would do this among us, that you would do this in me, and that we as a people would be pure, 
Lord, if there is secret sin among us, we pray this morning that today it would be confessed. That you'd be making us new. We ask you to do this, not because you desire our destruction, but because you desire our wholeness, our flourishing, our restoration. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.